I'm Bethany Dawson and welcome to My Classic Soul, the podcast dedicated to the best soul and R&B music throughout the decades. In our latest episode, soulmusic.com founder David Nathan is joined by Jason King, the acclaimed musician, DJ, performer, producer, songwriter, curator, journalist and the founding faculty member at New York University's Clive Davis Institute of Recorded Music. They talk about the pioneering legacy of Sylvester, a recent inductee into the Soul Music Hall of Fame. David and Jason discuss Sylvester's impact as a black and openly gay artist in the late 70s, with such timeless dance music classics as You Make Me Feel Mighty Real and Over and Over, as well as live performances that had across-the-board appeal globally. So, without further ado, here we go. Hi, Jason. Hey, David. Good to see you. Always good. Uh, I'm really thrilled that today we're, we're having a conversation about uh, someone who obviously is very influential in the world of music, uh, particularly soul music, and I'd say uh, in popular culture. And, and when I was thinking about um, uh, who we could have as a guest to talk to us about the illustrious uh, and relatively short career of Sylvester, who was recently inducted into the Soul Music Hall of Fame, I thought you would be an eminent speaker on the subject. And um, uh, I'm actually going to start with asking a question that just occurred to me to ask. Um, did you ever meet? I, I don't think you could have met Sylvester because you would have been too young. I never met Sylvester, no. But I, I feel like I did. And, and, you know, I think his, his spirit touched me in some way. Hmm. Well... We could start there. I could say I only met him. Actually, surprisingly, I went back and looked at all my Blues and Soul interviews, and I actually never interviewed. I only interviewed Sylvester once, once in person, although I saw him do shows. Uh, and, and we can talk about that one uh, time I met him a little later. Uh, so let, let's talk, talk about what you just exactly what you just said. You said that his, you didn't meet him, but his spirit touched you. So, so why don't you share with us, start with as, as a good jumping off point, uh, what was it about his spirit, about his music, about what he was about that did touch you? And, and do you remember your first, um, the first record you ever heard by Sylvester? Yeah, sure. I mean, my first memory uh, of Sylvester is a long play cassette tape from 1980. That was the year that my mother started buying me music. Um, and so I was really into like Andy Gibb at the time, uh, Michael Jackson. Uh, that was the year of a Motown Greatest Hits Release, so I was into Rock and Robin and all those kinds of songs. But we had this KTEL disco compilation, and it had uh, Boogie Oogie Oogie, Taste of Honey. It had Barry Manilow, Copacabana, and it had You Make Me Feel Mighty Real by Sylvester on it. And I knew nothing. We didn't have the internet, so I didn't know anything about Sylvester, who he was, what his background was. But I didn't even know if it was a man, if it was a woman. It was that falsetto voice, and it was really the mixture of that kind of gospel key in the context of all those electronics that got me. And that was like an anthem in my house at the time, playing that song over and over and over. Um, so over and over, a little pun there. Um, <laughs> we cut to years later, I'm a professor at New York University, and I decide um, to do a conference on Sylvester. It's a multi-day, the first multi-day conference on Sylvester's life and work, um, featuring 
people like Martha Wash, who was uh, one of his great um, background singers who ended up becoming part of Two Tons of Fun and the Weather Girls, um, but also people like Billy Porter, who most people know now as part of Pose, the t- uh, popular TV show, um, and many, many other scholars. And um, that was a real intervention in a lot of ways, right, to do to devote that much time in the context of an academic setting to someone like Sylvester, who had largely been a kind of a uh, hidden figure, unsung, unsung figure at that time. Um, and since then, I've, I've just been involved in a lot of so different Sylvester-related projects. Um, but I've always had a closeness to him and his music in a certain way, um, whether that's knowing Martha Wash, who worked with him, lots of other performers who worked with him, Carl Hall, who was a friend of both of ours, sang backup for him. Um, so I've always been around these Sylvester figures. And there's something about the nature of the kind of light that illuminated who he was and how he moved in the world that has always really touched me and I've always been um, very close to. Hmm. Wow. That was very eloquent and very vivid. And, and, and I, it's, it's interesting, though you didn't meet him, it sounds like you feel like you did, actually, through all those conversations you had with people. And also, I'm, I'm interested about one, one thing in particular uh, in, in what you said. So what had you... Um, uh, choose to do this uh you, you said you did a whole a program about a conference it? a multi-day conference. conference yeah so, so what was it that prompted you to do that because that that would have been unusual i mean because as you said he he in some ways has been like a footnote to to music history which is a shame because he was a pioneer he was a trendsetter he actually he bucked a lot of trends so to speak so what, what, what was it what what you know really um um, informed your choice to, to do a conference about it. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's it's you know, it's he's a figure that I always bring up in in classes when I teach about the history of R and B music or just popular music in general. I think he's one of those indispensable figures who just deserves a lot more recognition and a lot more attention. And so, part of that for me is that. Um, obviously, you know, he was an intersectional figure long before that became a buzzword. So he was black and he was gay. He was femme. Um, he was he embraced his femininity. Um, he was a queen in every sense of that term. Um, and uh, even today, in the context of R&B music and dance music, we don't have a lot of figures who represent all of those things. But he was doing this in the 1970s as one of the first, if not the first, out gay artist in disco music. And he was doing this at a very mainstream level, right? So he had 24 top uh, 20 R&B and pop hits. He was Billboard's disco or dance music artist of the year at a time in which dance music was the mainstream music in 1979. Um, so he's doing this at a very high level. He wasn't like a shrinking violet um and i think that's no. one of the things that, yeah i think that's one of the things that's really important right he was so flamboyant he was so charismatic and so exuberant and he was authentically himself at all times even in the face of extreme stigma and discrimination um and and like i said even to this day there are relatively few out gay or lesbian or even trans r&b um stars in black music and so for him to do that at a time in which Although it seems like there was a certain kind of liberation possible in disco to do that, there weren't a lot of out artists at that time, um, like explicitly out artists. And so for him to do that in that context, I think was courageous, it was brave, it was kind of revolutionary, and we haven't really seen anything like it again since. And so that's mm-hmm. one of the things that has attracted me to him. Mm-hmm. And I'll also just say, David, I mean, for me, um, I, you know, although Sylvester was flamboyant and outrageous and provocative and all of those things and the style and the dress and outfits um you know he's first and foremost to me a great musician 
So on one hand, it's that incredible soaring falsetto. And when you listen to him sing a ballad like You Are My Friend, the cover oh, yeah. track, yeah. I mean, the interpretation of it, the, the ability to essay a song like a Nancy Wilson or you know, an Aretha Franklin to go inside of the song and to really deliver um, the message of the song just through your voice, is, is he had an incredible talent at that. But the other thing I would just say is that I think he was also, uh, you know, one of the things he did is he... He, he, we know him through these incredible club tracks. I mean, you make me feel mighty real, dance, disco, heat. I need you over and over. I mean, these are some of the greatest club tracks of the disco era and since. And part of that, I think, is because, you know, he merged this sort of Pentecostal influenced gospel kojic heat um, with a kind of gospel and R&B musicianship, like a funky musicianship to the latest innovations in electronic music brought mm. to him by way of his collaborations um, with San Francisco's Patrick Cowley, who's a genius in synthesizers. And I think it was the marriage of, of those things in the context of black dance music that made him so revolutionary and made those songs real liberation anthems that mm. stand the test of time to this day, that you can go to any dance floor, um, you know, where they're doing like, you know, throwback music or, or disco stuff. And those songs will wipe you away i mean they're so true <laughs> yeah. you know there's, there's a few things i want to pick up on within what you said um i, I recall vividly uh, seeing sylvester uh in new york and this would have been around i, I want to say like 1979 78 79 and um he was on a show with at, at a place in new york called the felt forum and uh, which was like kind of part of Madison Square Garden complex, so to speak. And I, I don't know why, I don't remember who all was on the show. The, the one group that seems to stick in my mind as being on the show was the Dramatics. And it was a, the audience was a very, um, you know, R&B, uh, you know, just an R&B audience. I don't know how else to say that. I mean, it wasn't, you know, we're talking about 78, 79. We're not talking about crossover. We're talking about that audience was really, um, you know, designed for for the people who are buying the records by the dramatics and others. I really wish I could remember who else was on the show. But anyway, here's what I do recall. And you mentioned one of the songs. So this is why it's still so vivid in my mind. Um, so out comes Sylvester. He was actually the special guest opening artist. And uh, two tons of fun. And, of course, I could tell that some of the audience were not, they were not really prepared. They didn't know who he was. And, you know, because they came to see the dramatics and who else was on the show. Tell that there wasn't like an immediate kind of like, wow, Sylvester, you know. It took them a little time to warm up to his appearance. What I remember about his patter you know, his in-between song pad. He didn't, he didn't kind of you know, pad it to make it more, you know, R&B. He didn't say, hey, you know, who's here with their ladies? He didn't, he didn't do any of the kind of, you know, R&B show kind of, uh, yeah. this, is for, this is for the ladies. <laughs> I think if he had said that, <laughs> it might have provoked an interesting response. But, um, and the thing, the, the song, the, the, the performance that had everybody like, uh, as we a term we use in England, which you may be familiar with, gobsmacked, is uh, when he did uh, Patti LaBelle's You Are My Friend. I mean, 
whatever people thought of what he looked like, whatever they thought of Martha and, and, and Isora, whatever, whatever preconceptions they had, whatever they were thinking, because I didn't ask people in the audience what they were thinking of. But you could see there were, there were some people a little uncomfortable with it, I think. You could see they were like, you know, who is this? But when, when, when he sang, You Are My Friend, that was it. That, he like, as they say, smashed it. I mean, people were like, whoa, because what he brought to it is exactly what you just uh, shared. You know, that, that, that gospel emotional, the gospel feeling, the passion, the emotion. And he was a, he was a sure enough singer. He was a soul singer to his very core. And that he could do that with that kind of audience uh, was phenomenal. And, um, you know, it's funny, I, as I was thinking back to some of his recordings, uh, a lot of times, as you know, people focus on the, on the dance music tracks, the disco tracks, um, and, and yet when you hear him sing things like I Who Have Nothing and, um, you know, You Are My Friend, but the ball- I mean, ballads, I mean, this guy was like, whoa, whoa. And um, I was reading an, an interview he did with John Abbey at Blues and Soul, and, and one of the things that used to really uh, concern him was being pigeonholed as a disco artist. And we can talk more about that. And one thing I just want to give you as an aside, uh, which was quite amusing when I read it, apparently he um, he had done an arrangement of uh, Love is Like an Itching in My Heart, the Supreme Ooh. Song, and he did an arrangement which he thought would be perfect for Aretha, who he had never met, and he never did meet, apparently, and he sent it to her, but never heard anything back. But he always considered Aretha to be one of his primary uh, influences, somebody he really, in, in, in the other interviews I read, he just referenced her as like a, a major inspiration. So anyway, so, so uh, let's talk a little bit about the whole idea of him being pigeonholed as a dance music disco artist. And I'd like to hear what you, your, your thoughts are about that. Yeah, I, mean, I think it's important to remember that Sylvester came up um, out of the L.A. scene and then into the, the San Francisco scene um, by the late 1960s and early 1970s. And he was really coming out of the kind of like post-hippie bohemian mode. And if you listen to some of those early recordings, there's a compilation called Lights Up San Francisco. And, you know, the Pointer Sisters, who were his contemporaries, are singing backup on a you know track by him. And he's doing a cover of Leonard Cohen's Hey, That's No Way to Say Goodbye, which Roberta Flack also covered on first take, her first yeah. debut album. So he, he came out of a kind of bohe- black bohemian scene mm-hmm in the West Coast, and particularly the Bay Area at a particular moment. And he originally envisioned himself coming out of the blues tradition because he was influenced by a lot of the female blues singers, um, and even his own grandmother who was a singer. Um, he was influenced by that, and he saw himself as a, as a figure who was kind of bohemian but into the sort of rock world. So he was going to do something that David Bowie had done, um, even Elton John. Those were some of the kind of glam rock inspirations and so he um, fronted a band called sylvester and the hot band um, mm-hmm. neil sean from journey on electric guitar um and you know it was very odd to see a black man in drag fronting a white rock band but that was the time that was you know blue thumb records at that moment and and that's how he envisioned himself and you know aretha franklin is an interesting model here because 
you know, she was on uh, Columbia Records in the early 1960s, of course. And although some of those records are pretty amazing, it wasn't until she moved to Muscle Shoals and, you know, she's working with those uh, uh, backing musicians that she had the right musical setting that I think people could hear her in songs like Respect and others that became some of her classics. Mm -hmm. I think it's the same thing for Sylvester. The musical context wasn't invented yet in the early 1970s that would Mm -hmm. allow him to really shine and for his talent to shine. And that was disco. I think when disco hit, it was really the marriage of this incredible um, R&B and gospel talent to these kind of propulsive, spine-tingling, you know, you know, incredible uh, um, dance tracks. And I think when those things came together for him in the context of the right songs and also those electronics mm-hmm. by artists, by people like Patrick Cowley, that's when it worked. So disco was the vehicle for him, but he was much more than a disco singer. He could do R&B, he could do blues, he was a great song interpreter, he could do mm-hmm. jazz stylings, he could do a lot of different things, and he didn't want to be limited to just being disco. And of course, mm-hmm. there was this huge backlash against disco by 1970, late 1979. Yeah. And, um, you know, it was a, I would argue, a, a kind of implicitly racist and homophobic backlash. And it meant that very few black artists who made disco as their primary form of music were able to find mm-hmm. a second life after um, disco ended, especially with radio. And, uh, you know, I think he struggled definitely with the record labels to find an identity outside of disco. Um, mm. But he did in the early 80s. I mean, he was making some really incredible tracks um, and embracing technology in a different way. And of course, Do You Want a Funk of 1982 with Patrick Cowley, yeah. the Patrick Cowley Blast tracks, invented the high energy sound, which then became Eurodance, Eurodisco, and all of these other sounds, uh, or Eurodance in particular in the 90s, um, and influenced house music and all these other kind of uh, hard driving BPM musics. Uh, mm. So he's a pioneer in multiple ways and we should also discount his early 80s post-disco career let's pause for a quick break then we'll return to david nathan and jason king as they continue to talk about sylvester whose influence on generations of artists of the 90s and today is simply undeniable Check out In the Meantime by renowned trumpeter Willie Bradley featuring Gerald Alston, the lead singer of the legendary group The Manhattans. This jazzy groove with lyrics right on time with what's happening in the world today is on Soul Music Records, available now on all digital platforms. You know, well, I particularly loved about Do You Want to Funk With Me? It's so obviously not, you know, it's an obvious play on on the word funk. I mean, you know, you can take a, you can take a brain surgeon to figure that one out. Um, but, I, you, know, I, you know, I can remember, here's the thing that I can bring to this too. Uh, you know, as a as a Paradise Garage New York patron, you know, in the, in the late 70s, you know, Saturday nights, you would find me at the Paradise Garage uh, with my much longer hair back then, a lot more curly, <laughs> you know, and that was my place to go. And, and you know, I, I vividly remember, um, you know, when, when those uh, went over and over and uh, you make me feel my, I mean, they, I mean, they, these were like anthems. I mean, you, it's, you know, I mean, 
those were like the jams. I mean, there were a lot of jams. I mean, there were a lot of great music. You know, one of the things I want to say about that too is that a lot of times, you know, retrospectively, disco kind of gets, as you pointed out, of, of that back, backlash, which I agree was homophobic, racist, all of those things. Because I was living through that. I mean, I, that was my, you know, I was in, I was in my um, early 30s, I think. Yeah, early 30s late 20s, and, and you know, this was the music I listened to, this is the music I danced to, this is, I, I went out with my friends, this is what we did, we went to parties, that's what we, that's what we danced to. So um, I, I think that um, sometimes, well, in retrospect, historically, disco still gets kind of a little bit of a bad name, like, oh, it was just this fad. No, it, it lit people's lives up. I mean, you know, and, and, and you know, I think about, wow, just, I just really, really kind of got to me just now how, how that it was musical, it was like liberating. Uh, and, and it's kind of hard, I think, sometimes for, for our, the current generation, uh, uh, you know, current generations, you know, one can have more than one generation, <laughs> to really get, um, you know, what a difference that music made. You know, people worked every day, Monday through Friday, sometimes Saturday too, you know, and Saturday night to work off all the stuff of the week, you know, to get on the dance floor and hear you make me feel mighty real. And they did that one for, for, I mean, that for me will always be, uh, you know, that's the one for me. I mean, yes, there are other great tracks, but that one, yeah. Robert, I think Robert Crisco called You Make Me Feel Mighty Real uh, Disco's Great Gift to Pop Music. And I think that's true. And there's other you know, gifts disco gave to pop music, but I think that that one stands the test of time and you can play it on any dance floor right now and it'll still raise the roof. Um, you know, I think, you know, uh, Sylvester's audience was very mixed. I mean, that mm -hmm. San Francisco Opera House legendary performance he did in 1979, that, you know, there are the, the folks who were there talk about the ways in which it was straight and it was gay and it was men and it was woman and it was black yeah. and white and it was young and it was old and it was preppy. And it, I mean, he formatted a multicultural audience. And part of that is because the music itself was a kind of multicultural music that yeah. seduced the you know, the ears and the bodies of people, um, you know, marked by difference. And so it, it was a music that engaged black people, white people, Asian people. Brown, I mean, all kinds of people could find themselves in his music. And his music was so focused thematically on um, issues of empathy and kindness and sharing that, you know, track sharing something perfect, you know, between ourselves, the Thelma Houston cover, or you are my friend. It was about empathy and kindness and friendship and being social and coming together. And there's a way in which that music signals a future that we don't yet live in, right? Sylvester was the future that we don't yet live in because he helped format the idea of this kind of multicultural rainbow in which everyone could participate, a vision of a society in which everyone could participate. Mm -hmm. So when you talk about his live shows, and I would argue that uh, his Living Proof album uh, from 1979, which is a recording of this, uh, a composite recording of the um, San Francisco Opera House shows, yeah. Yeah. is one of the greatest uh, live disco records of the time, next to maybe, you know, Donna Summer's Live and More, Betty Wright's, you know, live disco album. Um, people think of that as an oxymoron, that disco could be live because of synthesizers yeah. and so on, but definitely there was an incredible liveness, and that show really captures the feeling of that concert and the feeling that Sylvester could generate, mm -hmm. which I think maybe was his primary contribution. He was someone who trafficked in feeling and good mm -hmm. vibration and good energy, and, mm -hmm. I mean, it was just propulsive, the kind of energy that he was able to um, release 
in a live concert setting or even on record. And, and that energy had a really particular power to bring people together in, in, a, in a way that is important even right now, even in this moment that we're in. Mm. Well, I think you know, what, I, what I, I'm hearing in, in what you said is he was very much a, a pioneer and, and, and an unsung pioneer. I mean, you know, I, I, I kind of take it for granted. I mean, because those, that music was part of my life. Uh, and I didn't see it in, in a historical context, which I can see now. Um, uh, but I don't think he gets anywhere near the kind of credit. I mean, we've talked, we've kind of referenced this already. The life was groundbreaking. And the, 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 the how he fashioned himself, the whole, I mean, you know, so way ahead of anybody else. And I, I, I struggled to think of anyone else uh, contemporaneous uh, from that time period who even came close to to... To, to, to creating that kind of vibe in a live show. I mean, really, I mean, uh, th- there was another interesting quote um, from one of the Blues and Soul articles. Uh, he was talking about the fact that he hadn't met, uh, this was, I think, 1979, this particular article. He had met uh, some of his hero, her- heroines, heroes, heroines. He met Diana Ross, and apparently... Uh, he couldn't believe that she knew all about his music. He was like blown away that for him, you know, Dinah Ross was like, you know, in a whole nother realm, what she was, given she had had all those hits and with the Supremes and she was by then, by, by the time period we're talking about, you know, emerging as a serious solo artist. And uh, he just couldn't believe that she even knew what he did. So, so that was, you know, it just points to the kind of way that, that even that he he was he, at the time um, pioneering, and even the people around around him, and and certainly you know, didn't really think of him that way. I think a lot of people thought he was kind of an oddity. Well, he was an oddity. He was, he was yeah. literally an oddity, and he, and he was queer, and there was no space in which you could be all of those things at the same moment. And again, now we're celebrating intersectionality and the people who are at the crossroads of race and sexuality and other identity uh, markers of our identity. But at the time, there was no language for that. And, no. and he no. was somebody who pioneered at that crossroads and made music openly and explicitly at that crossroads. There were other people doing stuff like that, like Freddie Mercury, I would argue, is another one, but yeah. not as free, right? Because mm-hmm. not as able to um, explicitly... Um, I uh, articulate his identity um, in the public marketplace in the way that mm-hmm. Sylvester would and could, even at great risk to his own career. I should also say that Sylvester is important also in helping um, propel the movement for tolerance around AIDS. Sylvester died of AIDS Absolutely. at age 41 in 1988, and um, he didn't hide his diagnosis. He was one of no. the first pop stars to um, be public about his diagnosis and also one of the first pop stars to die of AIDS. Um, yes. But he, uh, you know, famously was pushed in a wheelchair down Market Street during one of the gay prides. He would always show up at gay prides. And, you know, he was clearly uh, in ill health, um, but he wanted to be there and he wanted to present himself uh, to the public um, mm-hmm. so that they would raise awareness around the the, uh, the yes. disease, the pandemic. And so in the midst of a pandemic, you know, we can yeah. look at Sylvester and really celebrate what he did for raising awareness and education yeah. around issues of AIDS. Well, a couple other things I want to make sure we, we get in, in in this conversation. Um, one thing I, I would like to ask you about, because I know you've, um, as you mentioned, you had uh, Martha Wash at that conference. 
Um, so, and I know you've worked with Martha Walsh directly. So I'd like, to, I'd like kind of interesting to hear from you um, what she had to say about, about Sylvester, having worked with him, being on stage with him, and obviously he, then, you know, as a part of Two Times and Fun and so on. But just, just anything that you can recall about what she said, what she shared with you about her impressions of him and how he was working with him. Uh, I mean, you know, for her, Sylvester was, I think, a friend and was someone who she understood as, you know, a kindred human spirit in this journey, you know, that they were uh, taking together and that, you know, they he brought her to public attention and, um, you know, her work helped bring him to public attention. He wrote songs for her, Taking Away mm-hmm. Your Space. Uh, which oh, oh, is oh, an oh, amazing oh. song which he wrote. Um, the vocal performance of it is one of the greatest performances, I believe, in the history of R&B music, as far as I'm concerned. I've never heard anybody sing a track like that. I mean, she doesn't just sing it. I mean, she just takes it, turns it inside out, spits it out, yeah. eats it again, spits it back out. It's incredible. Um, but uh, and in this NYU conference that we did on Sylvester, she sang it live, which was also wow. really stunning and amazing. Um, but, you know, uh, any talks I've had with her about that have been about you know, just who he was and what he represented and the musicality and how they made those records together and just this, you know, the singing and those three-part harmonies, which are like, you know, should be studied like a Phil Spector wall of sound. I mean, just the most incredible divine sound. Um, But Martha is very rooted in the church and Sylvester was rooted in the church. And most of what they did came from being vessels for spiritual energy that move mm. through them. And, uh, and I think that's how they thought of themselves in certain kinds of ways. Mm. Well, two more things. Um, uh, I did want to share with you my one uh, interview with Sylvester. It was very brief. Um, I, I, I have a photograph uh, also of uh, him, he and I, and John Abbey, the uh, publisher and editor of Blues and so in which we are giving him an award. I can't remember where this took place, but there's three of us and we're giving, so I think it must have been in, in New York. But anyway, it might have been around the same time. Um, so I get a call from uh, Nancy Pitts, who was his manager at the time. And she's, uh, you know, I was living in New York and she calls it frantically. So, uh, you know, you know uh, Sylvester wants to give his first interview after he's been arrested. Well, yeah, he was he was arrested. Um, uh, it was a case of mistaken identity for um, you know uh, accused of, of having stolen some rare coins from a shop, and uh, he ended up spending three nights in um, in 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 the pokey in New York in the jail in jail. And he, so I asked him how was it, and he couldn't stop laughing. Of course, he was upset that it happened, you know, the mistaken identity. And the, you know, and, he, and he made a point. He said, you know, you know it, it's no question that it has something to do with my race. You know, the fact that, you know, I was this black man and they, they you know, and then it turned out to be that whoever it was had actually um, uh, passed himself off as a as a imposter, a Sylvester imposter, and it, like, fraudulently written some checks in his name and so on. But anyway, so in this interview, so I said, well, what was it like? And he said, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing slightly because I don't have any recording of the interview. He said something like, child, I had a great time with all those hoes, all the prostitutes. We talked, we, 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 he, 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 he said he had the best time 
you know, just talking to them. Uh, you know, and he, yeah, he felt like he was amongst kindred spirits. And, and, and just that's sort of what most of the interview was about. He made the best of being in jail and, and just and, and made friends with the ladies of the night. Probably a few men of the night in there too, but, but it just was a great. That's what I was left with: that his spirit, his the energy. He, he, he I really, I, I, the conversation is very vivid, uh, just about who he was in his conversation with me. Uh, just a very, um, you know, turning what could have been a really a nightmare uh, situation to something where he could find um, humor. It probably was a nightmare. Um... But at the same time, he was able to see the, the 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 humorous part or the fun part, or at least reflect that back to you yeah. in a way which I think is also um, reflective of his music. Right, that he the music is a mixture of both um, this kind of suffering, but this pleasure as well at the same time. That's what I'm yeah. hearing, at least in some of his music, is yeah. that he understands the darkness of human life, but he wants to be an optimist throughout yeah. it all. You know, yeah. you are my friend. Mm-hmm. Well, one more thing. I just remembered there was one other group, uh, and it's interesting you're wearing the Asher and Simpson t-shirt, Asher and Simpson, Nick and Val, um, the Dynamic Superiors, uh, of course, at Motown, uh, produ- first album produced by Asher and Simpson, and most of the songs, in fact, all the songs written for uh, uh, for that group by uh, by Nick and Val, uh, and they were revolutionary, of course, in their own way, because the lead singer Tony Washington was a very out gay man, and it was a harmony group. And but they, you know, their first record, Shoo Shoo Shine, was a big hit. Um, and then, you know, also to, to, to in context, you know, we get, uh, uh, you know, in 1977, I think, uh, we get Carl Bean, I Was Born This Way, you know, uh, which, of course, also revolutionary, given that he was, you know, for so many reasons, you know, for so many reasons. Um, and and then we get Sylvester. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of dodging around a little bit in chronology, but the thing I want to bring to our close in our conversation, Jason, so I, I, is this. When I think about Sylvester and, his, and what he created, the legacy he created, and I look at today, and then there's this big gap between Sylvester and I'm not sure who. Yeah, I mean, people talk about that, right? Like, what happened after Sylvester and so on? And so, on one hand, I see I see Sylvester as a, as a unique figure, a singular figure. He's a kind of unicorn in the history of dance music and 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 just popular music in general. But on the other hand, I think he's part of a continuum. So before him, there was Little Richard, and there were figures like that. And then after him, um, there are also figures I think that are worth talking about. So on one hand, there's a direct influence with people like Jimmy Somerville of Bronski Beat, who's literally inspired by Sylvester and like covering his tracks and singing in the same kind of falsetto, and other people like Andy Bell of Erasure and others but i think in terms of like sylvester's the template that he created of being black and out and lgbt in popular music i mean there's the jermaine stewart's to the rupaul's to today's janelle monet's and mickey blanco's and frank oceans but in terms of sound we shouldn't 
forget all of the DJs who were directly influenced by mm-hmm. marriage of spiritual um, gospel influenced music and those dance beats. So whether we're talking about Ron Hardy or Frankie Knuckles or Masters at Work in particular, mm-hmm. Louis Vega and Kenny Gonzalez, um, Basement Boys, DJ Spin, all that, anything mm-hmm. that's like spiritual house, gospel house, whatever, is directly influenced by some of Sylvester's innovations in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. Um, Disclosure is another group uh, in the mm-hmm. contemporary moment that's doing that stuff. Um, Kenny Bobian and others and like I said, you can't go anywhere on a dance floor um, where they're playing disco and not be inspired and not hear Sylvester's music being played somewhere. Um, yeah. So I think although there isn't that immediate influence, unless you look at somebody like a Sam Smith or something like that, who worked with Disclosure on a song mm-hmm. like Latch, which has a kind of Sylvester, you know, throwback mode mm-hmm. to it. I mean, the influence is pervasive. It's almost everywhere. Yeah. And it's why we're at the stage that we're at now where we're having to think more about intersectionality and about blackness and about queerness and all of these things and how mm-hmm. they work with each other in the context of all of our entertainment industries and culture. Yeah. Well, I know it's shameless to do this, but we can't also, we can't, we, we can't complete that without, of course, talking about the music that you've made with Company Freak, which is also very much in, you know, the, the, the continuing in a sense, some of that tradition and some of the vocalists that you've, used um on on that music are in fact directly well it's from that time period i mean singers yeah. like norma jean wright working with norma jean wright and from chic and lucy martin and also uh you know hubert eves from d train and so on um yeah. but we cover do you want to funk actually um it's on record um and uh shana Steele, the incredible shana Steele, sings it i mean it's just an incredible vocal performance um but i've all i i my fascination with Sylvester and his innovations and what he was able to bring to popular music. Uh, I didn't want to just write about those things or do conferences about them. I wanted to actually try to recreate the sound of the yeah. spirit in particular um, of what he represented and to really honor him um, yeah. uh, by way of the music that I could, I could uh, create. Well, perfect ending to a wonderful conversation. Uh, thank you so much, Jason. I'm just really glad we had an opportunity to honor Sylvester in this podcast uh, as a recent Soul Music Hall of Fame inductee. Thank you for your time and thank you for your insight and observations. Truly happy to be here and truly happy he's in Soul Music Hall of Fame. And thank you, David, for all your work always. Thank you. Thanks, David and Jason. I hope you all enjoyed that one because I definitely did. Please don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review on your favourite podcast platform and visit us for breaking news and daily updates about your favourite soul and R&B artists over at soulmusic.com. I'm Bethany Dawson. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time on My Classic Soul. Soul.